KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. The fate of Friendship Park as Biden's border wall plans loom. This plan would essentially destroy one of, if not the only, legal way these families have of seeing each other right now. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A look at how wastewater testing finds COVID variants. The wastewater uh, genomics data is incredibly valuable because it is an early indicator. We know when the wastewater levels go up that that precedes the cases going up, which then precedes the hospitalizations. And a homicide case at the Veterans Village of San Diego, plus a preview of a new book about horror and exploitation cinema. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A long-standing cross-border gathering place will soon be replaced with a set of 30-foot walls, according to recently confirmed plans by Customs and Border Protection. Friendship Park, closed since the beginning of the pandemic, has for decades been a place families separated by international borders could meet amid increasingly high border tensions. The decision comes as yet another apparent indication that the Biden administration is continuing the legacy of Trump-era border policy. Joining me now with more is KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, welcome back to the show. Hello, Jade. Thanks for having me again. Before we get started on this decision from the Biden administration, can you give us some background on Friendship Park? Well, sure, sure. I mean, as you said in the intro, right, this is a unique spot along the border where families who are separated by the border can walk right up to the fence and see and talk and, uh, and even hold each other. It's the only place that this happens along the border. Uh, before the pandemic, Customs and Border Protection agents would let people visit loved ones on Saturdays and Sundays from 10 to 2 p.m. So it was kind of like a formalized official place to do this. And people would come from all over the U.S. and Mexico. I've heard stories of people flying from Seattle and New York City just to come to this part of the border. This section, like you said, has been closed uh, since a little bit before the pandemic. It closed originally because of heavy rains that make the area difficult to access. But CBP kept it closed because they say it's staffing issues. Advocates are quick to kind of hit back and say it's not really a matter of staffing, it's a matter of priorities, right? If CBP, CBP makes the decision of where to send its limited staff and leadership is making the decision not to send them to Friendship Park. Is the staff limited though? 
I mean, that's CBP's answer to everything, right? I mean, if you talk about long border wait times or why Pet West is still closed, even this with, with Friendship Park, their answer is always staffing levels, which I mean, at least it's a consistent answer, but the, the agency has something like more than 40 billion in its budget. So you kind of have to wonder what, where staffing and resources are being allocated right now. You know, what kind of impact is this closure going to have on families that rely on the park as a way to connect with one another? Well, th- this plan would essentially destroy one of, if not the only, legal way these families have of seeing each other right now. Most people impacted by this are what advocates called mixed-status families. Some relatives have been deported, so they cannot come to the U.S., or some people in the U.S., they have DACA or some kind of special work visas that prevent them from leaving the U.S. So it's not just people who are in the country illegally, it's people who are in the country legally but have restrictions on their travel because of, of, of certain visa requirements. Uh, for those families, like I said, this is the only legal option to physically see and spend time with their loved ones, the border, and, and they would be most impacted by it. Did CPB make any kind of outreach efforts before this decision was made? Uh, They did not. And that's probably what's most frustrating to local advocates. Uh, What they told me is that about a week ago, CBP officials uh, from the San Diego sector called them to a meeting and basically told them that this was a done deal and it'll happen within the next uh, couple of weeks, if not months. And you've spoken to some people in the community about this decision. How are people feeling about this? Yeah, I did. I did. And and they're, I mean, they're sad, angry, and they're betrayed. Uh, A lot of the frustration comes from the fact that President Joe Biden ran on a campaign promise not to build another foot of Trump's border wall. And that's exactly what he's not doing right now. He's extending it here in San Diego. Uh, Advocates told me that they remember Democrats framing the 2020 campaign as a direct response to Trump. But at least along the border, they're not seeing much of a difference between Trump and Biden in these first couple of years. And and that's the main source of frustration, not just with Friendship Park, but with other border and immigration issues. Has CPB given any official reasoning for the park's eventual closure? I mean, any particular reason why they need to replace the existing fence? Well, this is part of Trump's border wall, the one that Mexico was supposed to pay for, but is actually being funded by the taxpayers. Part of that project was not really new walls, but mostly replacing existing fences. And, and that's what's happening here in San Diego. All right, to be clear, there are fences in the park already. All along San Diego, there are actually two fences. CBP calls them a primary fence and a secondary fence. There's this weird no man's land in the middle between the two fences that they use to patrol the area. And what's unique and awesome about Friendship Park is that there's a gate between the first and second fence. So people can walk right up to the fence that, that's right along the border and talk to people there. With these two, the new design, they don't have a gate in between the two fences. There's no space specifically dedicated to visit families with each other. And again, you know, as you've mentioned, there is this larger discussion here about the Biden administration's continuation of Trump-era border policy, in this case, the construction of a 30-foot wall. I mean, what can you tell us about this? Well, this is just one part of it, right? Like you mentioned, the other one is Title 42, which the Biden administration kept in place for years after being elected, is trying to get rid of it now, but is facing pushback. The courts, kind of like he did with Remain in Mexico, which was another Trump-era policy that Biden had been, and even as of today, has been unable or unwilling to, to get rid of. So there's a track record that doesn't look great for Democrats and specifically for Biden when it comes to the border and when it comes to rolling back some of Trump's-era policies. When will the park ultimately be closed and will there be something new in its place? Advocates have told me it's a matter of weeks or months at most, but it has kind of 
been closed for over a couple of years now. In terms of what the park would look like in the future, I'm not sure. I mean, Borderfield State Park is still there and you'll still be able to access it and walk over there. But this idea of this place of it being the one and, and potentially only place along the border where you can actually go and see people who can't physically cross in the U.S., I don't think that will ever come back if, if it goes away. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Jade. A technique developed at UC San Diego in Scripps to detect the COVID virus in wastewater is now being used around the world. That's the message of an article in today's online edition of the magazine Nature. Researchers say the process is cheaper and faster than clinical COVID testing and has the potential to keep up with and identify emerging variants. Joining me to talk about how testing wastewater has helped in the fight against COVID is Dr. Chris Longhurst, Chief Medical Officer and Chief Digital Officer at UC San Diego Health. And Dr. Longhurst, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I want to start by asking you about the current level of COVID-19 in San Diego's wastewater. What are we seeing now? And as the highly infectious BA5 variant becomes the dominant strain here? Interestingly, we're seeing that the wastewater levels of COVID-19 have actually leveled off over the last couple of weeks. But of course, we're seeing case rates uh, increase. And that's probably a reflection of the fact that it takes a week or two once you get infected to really become symptomatic and sick. We know with BA.4 and BA.5, which are now the predominant lineages in San Diego, that these are more likely to have immune escape, meaning people who've been previously infected or vaccinated are more likely to get this than they were with prior variants. So while the wastewater is level, the cases are going up and our hospitalizations are also going up. So what what is the connection really? What does the wastewater information tell you about the virus levels in the community? Well, what's really neat about the wastewater is that it's not biased by who is testing. So with wastewater, we know when these circulating levels of COVID are increasing when they're decreasing, regardless of whether or not people are coming to health systems or doing home testing. In fact, we estimate now that 90% of cases are discovered with home testing, which is great. That's how we want people to, to test, which is conveniently, frequently, cheaply in their homes. But the wastewater gives us a really good understanding of how the virus is circulating in our community. This is the first time that we've done really broad wastewater uh, surveillance for a virus with COVID, but it's possible with a number of other viruses. In fact, just recently, we heard uh, stories in the United Kingdom of discovering some circulating virus that uh, was concerning and uh, required uh, further investigation. And how does wastewater testing speed up the process of identifying new variants? Well, what's great about wastewater is that we can detect with high resolution sampling uh, really small numbers of new variants. And so the paper that was just published in Nature today by Dr. Rob Knight and colleagues, I was fortunate to be part of this effort. And it showed that the wastewater surveillance preceded our discovery of variants in the clinical cases by two to three weeks. In fact, you remember when Omicron was first announced in South Africa, which was uh, right, right after Thanksgiving uh, last year. We actually found evidence in our wastewater here in San Diego of Omicron before the announcement was made by South Africa. 
Now, how has learning about levels of COVID-19 in wastewater, how has that affected public health strategies against the COVID-19 virus? Well, the the wastewater uh, genomics data is incredibly valuable because it is an early indicator. We know when the wastewater levels go up that that precedes the cases going up, which then precedes the hospitalizations. We showed with the Delta surge last summer that the wastewater actually predicted it by three weeks. So it helps us to put in place mitigation techniques. In fact, here at UC San Diego, a couple of weeks ago when the wastewater was increasing, we moved to uh, our our local red tier. We asked all employees on site to test uh, in a mandatory fashion, and we shifted to pre-procedure testing for all of our um, uh, patients. And so that that was really valuable for us because it, it gave us a bit of a crystal ball looking into the future. It seems like this wastewater testing started out about two years ago on the UC San Diego campus, and now it's being used around the world. Is that right? Well, we can't take credit for being the first to ever do wastewater testing. It's been around for about 20 years, but it really hasn't been broadly used. We're certainly one of the first colleges to use this to uh, find cases, and that was extraordinarily helpful for us as part of our Return to Learn program. And we're partnered here at UC San Diego with the County of San Diego to do the wastewater monitoring, not only at the Point Loma wastewater treatment plant, where we've been doing it now for over a year, but now also at the Encina and other wastewater treatment plants locally. And so this gives us really tremendous insight that not all counties in California have, even though this is part of the governor's recommendation and SMART plan. And the reason that it has caught on so well, well, at least one of the reasons, is because it is so much faster and economical than the usual form of monitoring for COVID. Isn't that right? That's absolutely correct. I can't quote you the number, but every one of our wastewater tests is in the, let's say, hundreds of dollars, whereas testing a clinical sample to find out, let's say, if I'm COVID positive, which genomic variant I'm carrying It's much more expensive, but it's also not clinically valuable in an individual. We don't treat you differently or give you a different medicine because you have a different variant, but understanding what variants are circulating in the population helps us to plan things like vaccination strategies and antiviral availability and uh, prevention and mitigation techniques. Can you explain how the level of COVID in sewage translates to the number of infections in the community? Well, that's part of this paper that was just published in Nature. We're, we're working hard to be able to correlate those um, wastewater viral levels with number of cases. It's not always easy because different variants can actually shed different amounts of particles in the gut. And so a, a, a single surge is comparable within itself, but not always to other surges. Now, they're not exponentially different, so we ha- we can make some estimates, but we have to learn with each surge and each variant how those wastewater uh, particles behave. And have institutions such as the CDC and the World Health Organization promoted wastewater testing as sort of an official diagnostic tool for communities? It's really gaining a lot of steam. So the Center for Disease Control has made this a strong recommendation that communities begin wastewater testing. As I mentioned, the governor made this a requirement as part of the SMART plan for the state of California, but it requires substantial infrastructure. You have to have testing facilities. You have to have the ability to monitor this on a regular basis. We're partnered closely with Dr. Seema Shah and the County of San Diego uh, Public Health to make sure that we're getting these samples in a timely fashion. And then we're shortening that turnaround time from when we get the samples at UC San Diego 
window to when we produce those results. And you'll see that on the search uh, website where we now have uh, results as quickly as three to seven days from time of sampling. I've been speaking with Dr. Chris Longhurst. He's Chief Medical Officer and Chief Digital Officer at UC San Diego Health. Dr. Longhurst, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. A few weeks ago, we brought you a story about concerns over safety conditions at a drug and alcohol treatment program run by Veterans Village of San Diego, a nonprofit that helps veterans and their families. Now, a 29-year-old Army veteran was allegedly killed by her neighbor last week at a different property run by Veterans Village. iNews Source investigative reporter Cody Dulaney has this story from someone who says she witnessed the killing. And a warning to our listeners, some details may be disturbing. Deborah Berg says it happened fast, maybe 30 seconds. She was sitting in her truck outside of an apartment complex in southeast San Diego, run by Veterans Village. She was there to see her friend, Army veteran Janelle Self. And then all of a sudden, I didn't really hear anything else, but I heard Janelle yell, call 911, call 911. San Diego police say it started as an argument between neighbors. It ended with a 44-year-old woman under arrest for the killing. Berg says she saw the entire thing. I couldn't believe it. It was just a plain and simple murder. It really was. The woman who died reached out to iNewsource last year to share her concerns about Veterans Village. At the time, the single mother said she and her toddler were living in a mold-infested apartment owned by the nonprofit. She had moved there to join a housing program which offers services like therapy and case management, but she worried about violent and aggressive neighbors. The vast majority of these residents have a significant history of trauma. Suzanne Haman is a former therapist with Veterans Village. She warned management about unstable, violent people at the apartment complex when she resigned last year. She says it was a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, you know, the, the biggest safety concern that I saw was just that there were all these volatile personalities. Last month, iNewsource published an investigation into Veterans Village that revealed widespread drug use, staff misconduct, and violence at its celebrated rehab center near Mission Hills. The complex where the killing occurred is in a different part of the city, but police activity has been on the rise there too. Calls to San Diego police have more than doubled in the past four years. The killing happened last Monday afternoon. Police officials say it started with a dispute. Berg isn't sure exactly what happened. She only saw it spill out into the parking lot when her friends started yelling at her to call 911. I, I thought she was kidding. I, uh, really? I thought she was kidding. I was sending him. And then she comes walking out and the lady's right behind her. The woman accused of the crime, Samantha Munez, then climbed into a car and started the ignition. She you know, stood right in front of her car with her camera. She's like, going to take a picture. Munez started slowly inching forward while Self stood in front, slowly backing away, keeping the camera pointed on the driver in front of her. The lady's right here right now. 
and, and, and the lady yells, get out of the way. And Janelle's like, you're not going anywhere. Then she saw the driver accelerate and plow into Self. She didn't think it was real until Self flew through the air and landed on her back in the middle of the road. Erg says she gasped. She remembers the swing of her friend's hair. And I walked up, I mean, I'm dialing 911 and there's cars stopped on both sides. And I could see that she's breathing. Within minutes, she says police were on the scene and a crowd started to gather further up the road, apparently where the driver had come to a stop. San Diego police later said the suspect stayed at the scene. All the while, the two-year-old son of the woman who died was in his car seat, waiting for her to return. She was later pronounced dead at the hospital. Her child is now with family out of state. Muniz was arrested for murder, but later charged with lesser offenses. Berg is still trying to cope with what she witnessed. Well, it kind of makes me really angry that it was senseless. And that is the end of a beautiful person's life. It really, really, really makes me angry. The death is the latest in a string of serious safety issues that have critics raising alarms about the nonprofit's operations. In a statement, Veterans Village CEO Akila Templeton said she was devastated to hear what happened. According to Templeton, the nonprofit has done everything it can to protect its tenants and is providing counseling. Security guards are now at the property. For KPBS, I'm iNews Source investigative reporter Cody Dulaney. This story is co-reported by Jill Castellano at iNewsource, an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. The death of a Navy SEAL candidate in February is raising questions about the safety of basic training. Kyle Mullen died of pneumonia just after so-called Hell Week at the SEALs boot camp in Coronado. His family recently released an autopsy that concluded he received inadequate medical care even though he was seriously ill. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh has the story. Regina Mullen says she trusted the SEALs with her son Kyle's life, and they failed him. They're torturing our men. You can't do that to prisoners of war. There's war crimes, and they're doing it to our own athletic, young, bright men that are willing to give up their lives to serve the country. They're torturing them. It's not training. Mullen had played football at Yale and Monmouth University. He died February 4th, hours after finishing Hell Week. The endurance test is part of the notoriously difficult SEAL basic training. The autopsy confirms her son was left alone in the barracks with other candidates who had also showed signs of being sick. Kyle Mullen was found unresponsive on the barracks floor after another candidate called for medical help for himself. Severe pneumonia, untreated severe pneumonia. There's no way a 23-year-old healthy boy should die of severe pneumonia. And that's a disgrace that he was not treated for deities. They knew he had it. He was found with a 36-ounce bottle filled with his own blood and mucus. The autopsy revealed Mullen died of Streptococcus pyogenes, a type of pneumonia often associated with military bases. Regina Mullen is a registered nurse. She says her son was struggling to breathe when he called her a few hours before he died. You all knew that my son was compromised. The medical team, the instructors, the lieutenant, the commander had to have known. They were all seeing the guy spitting up blood. You, you sent him to the barracks, sent the medical team home, and you let him die. Hell Week is virtually unchanged since at least the 1970s. For nearly a week, candidates are submerged in the Pacific Ocean, forced to continually swim or march with boats on their back. 
They get little sleep. Some seals say by the end they were hallucinating. Regina Mullen says her son was told he could get medical help if he rang a bell three times. But that was also the signal that he wanted to give up. You have to ring a bell, and then they'll give you medical. And ringing the bell is quitting. Now, that, that is a game that the instructors play that's absolutely true that they say stuff like that is absolutely untrue that they meant it. Robert Adams is a medical doctor and former SEAL. He wrote a book about Hell Week. Adams says medical teams are there to monitor candidates, at least during the exercise. I've, over the years, followed SEAL training as a physician looking back and and seen numerous reports of pneumonia, usually in somebody that's pulled out of Hell Week and told you can't go on, you know, and they're screaming, please don't pull me. If they don't continue, candidates either leave or they can be rolled back to try again with a later class. Mullen had already been rolled back once. Regina Mullen says SEALs told her that instructors liked Kyle and they pushed him to finish the last couple of days. But she says candidates shouldn't have to decide if they can do it. They probably don't even know what day to week it is. They're probably delirious, altered mental status. How can you expect them to make that decision knowing what their medical condition is? The U.S. military often talks about training like you fight. Hell Week is more of a test of physical and psychological endurance. Instructors try to push candidates past what they think are their limits. Jeff Butler is a former SEAL. Really, the goal of it is to weed out uh, people that aren't going to just have the the mental fortitude to not quit when it gets absolutely terrible. I mean, guys that will go until they have literally life-threatening pneumonia. Butler's father was also a SEAL. While warfare has changed dramatically over the decades, Hell Week hasn't. It's a ritual to see who gets to be part of their, their organization. That's, I mean, they consider themselves gatekeepers of who is good enough to be in the community. Uh, that's how the instructors often saw themselves. Secretary of the Navy Carlos del Toro told Congress in May that after Mullen's death, the SEALs now have medical staff available instead of just on call after Hell Week. His mother says that's not enough. She says they need an outside investigation. Steve Walsh, KPBS News. Joining me is KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. And Steve, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Does the Navy release information on how many SEAL candidates have died during training? Well, the SEALs tend to be uh, rather secretive. We learn about these when they happen, maybe not right after they happen. Uh, So I don't have a a tally of just how many SEALs have died. Uh, We know that um, back in 2017, Jason Loveless drowned very early on during uh, BUDS. Uh, years earlier, we also know that a couple of instructors have uh, drowned during what's called um, a drown-proofing exercise, where they were practicing their underwater breathing. Is it rare for SEAL trainees not to make it through Hell Week or the course in general? Oh, no, no. It's incredibly common. It's In fact, it's really kind of baked into the cake. Um, you know, in the class that Mullen was in, there were over 200 SEALs who started, or SEAL recruits that started BUDS, and then less than 20 ended up finishing. It's, it's, you know, it really is one of the hallmarks of SEAL basic training. So most of them drop out within the first day of Hell Week, which, which comes you know, a few weeks in. But still, this is the real crucible that, where most people end up dropping out. Many of them just decide it's, it's not what they want, even though they may have been thinking about doing this for years. There are also a number of injuries uh, which render people unable to get through the course, broken bones, strained muscles and such. Uh, pneumonia is quite common. Um, 
it's basically baked into this whole process. They weed out anyone who doesn't seem willing to sort of push through the pain and deprivation. SEALs are also, uh, they recruit candidates from outside the Navy, you know, college athletes like, like Mullen. You know, they go through Navy boot camp uh, and then go right into the buds at Coronado. So they've really only been in the military for a couple of months before they're, they're, they're faced with Hell Week. Uh, Steve, can you give us some insight into the attitude of Navy SEAL instructors and trainees during Hell Week, the, the kind of attitude that could lead to the sight of a young man spitting up blood and not being taken for medical treatment? Yeah. So there are two things there. As I've said, the candidates have to impress their instructors as they uh, push past any obstacles. They have to show them that they, they really have the uh, uh, what it takes to, to endure anything. So you know, they have every incentive not to complain and just to keep going no matter what's going on with their bodies. The instructors are telling them that they can push back and push beyond what they think are their real limits. Mrs. Mullen, of course, who lost her son, Kyle, says young men under such extreme physical and psychological stress should not make their own decisions on whether to continue through Hell Week. Who does she think should make that call? There is no question that the lives of these candidates are 100% in the hands of SEAL leaderships. That's the medical teams, that's the instructors, that's the command itself. They have to have the processes in place to keep cadets safe or candidates safe. Uh, there are standards. The SEALs are expected to release their own investigation into this incident. We're going to have to find out going forward uh, what changes they might want to make after Mullen's death. Now, the former Navy SEAL you spoke with kind of made it sound like the extremes of Hell Week are more like a hazing ritual than a real training exercise. Is that a fair assessment? Well, you know, hazing is specifically illegal in the military, so the SEALs would take issue with calling it hazing specifically. Though, you know, Hell Week isn't really training in the typical sense of the word. Um, you know, they're learning some skills, but Hell Week specifically is more about uh, testing endurance. Structure, instructors are screaming at the candidates, telling them that they can quit any time, that they will get food and a warm blanket. The candidates uh, are put into a state of continual exhaustion. They're wet and their core body temperature starts to drop. You know, this, the instructors see themselves as gatekeepers. They're, they're looking for who they want to lead them or who they want to serve alongside with in combat. So on the last day, um, as they start to hallucinate, instructors may tell them they still have one more day to go. So there's a real psychological component to this. For the people who get through it, it's an experience which they can draw upon, you know, if they are in combat or other difficult situations. But for the most part, it's not really skill training. Now, in your report, you say Mrs. Mullins wants an outside investigation into her son's death. How likely is that to happen? Well, you know, we've seen a lot of parents who've had their sons and daughters die in training accidents. And one of the big issues is how the, mil the military is allowed to police itself. You know, these SEALs are especially secretive. Uh, sometimes that uh, reflects the kind of missions they're called upon to undertake. But as we've seen uh, in, in the past couple of years with cases like uh, SEAL Chief Eddie Gallagher accused of war crimes, there have been attempts by the SEALs themselves to sort of police themselves and, and sort of clean up their ranks with only really mixed success. 
Um, the commander who was running SEAL basic training when Mullen died, he left in May. In the case of Mullen, uh, it'll be interesting to see how much uh, the Navy allows the SEALs to handle their own investigation or whether a so-called Big Navy will uh, take a look at this and take this out of the SEALs' hands. Now, Secretary of the Navy Carlos del Toro, he told Congress in May that the SEALs were looking into changes at BUDS. We're going to have to see what those changes are. There's a report, uh, a command investigation by the SEALs that's expected uh, to come out maybe as early as this month. I've been speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Steve, thank you. Thanks, Maureen. Collecting food waste for composting is something that often happens in backyards, but now two cities are doing it, and the landfill is part of new state legislation to actually keep food out of landfills. Carlsbad and Chula Vista have updated their facilities to comply with the new legislation, so now residents in those cities are taking part in a new green effort. Here to talk about it is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, welcome. Thank you, Jake. So the purpose of these new state requirements is to keep food waste out of landfills. But why is it so important to do that? Well, it's a pretty simple answer. In fact, uh, one thing that happens when you put a bunch of organic or food waste, table scraps, et cetera, into a landfill is they start to decompose. It's the natural course of things, right? When they decompose, though, one of the byproducts of that decomposition is a gas that's known as methane gas. And so it produces methane gas, which just so happens to be a very dangerous greenhouse gas emission gas. So it it causes a lot of trouble. It doesn't last very long once it gets into the atmosphere, but in that short amount of time that it's in the atmosphere, it causes a lot of issues uh, on greenhouse gas warming conditions. And the Otai landfill where this food waste is going has had its issues in the not-so-distant past with high levels of methane gas, particularly as homes near the site were being built, right? It's been identified as a toxic uh, air hotspot in uh, the state of California. Uh, And so they have additional requirements uh, to try to get these methane emissions under control. And this composting should help lower the amount of methane that is produced once the garbage is buried there. And as of July 1st, Republic Services, as you mentioned, has started picking up food waste from Chula Vista and Carlsbad. So how does this work? It's uh, pretty straightforward. What they've gone ahead and done is that they've handed out these kitchen caddies, right? They're basically little, small, you know, three or four gallon size uh, plastic containers with lids that can be sealed. That's kind of important. Uh, And what they're asking people to do is to use those containers to put all of their food scraps in, stuff like uh, coffee grounds and the filters that come with those, stuff like uh, any kind of leftover food that they normally would put in their garbage, put them in these kitchen caddies. And then at the end of the week, you add the the contents of that container to your green yard waste bin. The company will then come pick up that yard waste, take it to a composting site that's uh, on site at that landfill and turn both the yard waste and the organic waste into compost that can then be resold. Right now, it's just for single family residents. Apartment complexes are not included. They do hope to include apartment complexes moving forward. Do you know where or how people are supposed to get these kitchen caddies and plastic containers with lids? If residents uh, need one and don't have one, they can just uh, make a request through Republic Services. And there's a grace period here for residents and Republic Services, right? Yeah, uh, 
the Cal recycle has been really, I think, uh, very generous on the implementation of this law. We knew for a long time that it was going to be coming, but it's expensive to build a composting facility that can handle the kind of waste that's going to be generated. So they wanted to give municipalities and private trash haulers a little bit of leeway. Uh, the law went into effect in January. Technically, we should have had it up and running by then, but it's July now, and that's only six months past the deadline. I, I think Cal recycle is of the mind that they're willing to give communities, you know, kind of the first year to try and get things together and get things up and running. And then, you know, if they still aren't in compliance by next year, maybe that's the the time that they start to look at other ways to encourage municipalities to move in that direction. So what happens to this food waste that's collected? Yeah, it's mixed in with the green waste. It's basically chopped up. They add water to it. They put it over these aerators, which basically force air into the to the piles of the, the chopped up green waste and organic waste. Uh, and that allows the composting process to begin. And after about eight weeks, they have, uh, instead of a big pile of green waste and organic waste, they have a big pile of compost. And one interesting thing about SB 1383 that people may not realize is that one part of that bill also requires the cities, in this case, Chula Vista and Carlsbad, to buy back that mulch, that compost product. Uh, so in essence, it creates a part of the market. They can sell it to other sellers as well, or other buyers as well, but, but the municipalities are obliged to, to kind of buy back some of that. And then, you know, you take that compost, you add it to your soils, it makes your soils richer, et cetera. So if the buyback provision in this new legislation is part of the state plan to create a market for the end product, which is mulch, um, how are they sure this compost won't just be sitting in the landfill like so many plastics, for example, uh, that they can't seem to recycle or sell? Well, it helps to have the requirement for municipalities to buy. That helps, yes. It's kept separate from uh, all the other things, recycled stuff. It's kept separate from the regular landfill. So there's no uh, way that it's going to be uh, you know, accidentally buried or, or mixed in with recycling processes. Um, I think the challenge uh, that municipalities will have or the, the trash local trash haulers will have is to make sure that it gets sold on a regular basis. So, you know, one thing that you can, you know, you use mulch on your garden, you can use it in your yard. But if you're a small single family residence, that's not going to have much of an impact. You're not going to need that much. But if you're a municipality, maybe you're carrying uh, caring for lots of uh, landscaped uh, area that could be a, a really valuable uh, thing for those cities. I've been speaking with Eric Anderson, KPBS environment reporter. Eric, thanks. My pleasure. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Back in 2018, Matt Rotman decided to start a blog focused on the genre films he loved. Now the San Diego-based author and filmmaker has a book inspired by the blog called Bunker's Ass Cinema, a guide to the wildest of horror and exploitation cinema. The book takes a deep dive into 100 films from nine genres and includes filmmaker interviews. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando spoke with the author about the book and the appeal of genre cinema. Matt, 
You have written a book called Bonkers Ass Cinema, A Guide to the Wildest of Horror and Exploitation Cinema. So in the intro, you describe Bonkers Ass Cinema as an ethos. So what do you mean by that? The ethos part is very important to me. It guides the book. It just guides my film criticism in general. And the way I describe it in the book is basically, I say there are two types of people in this world and two types only. People who laugh at Plan 9 from Outer Space. They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the Earth. Plan 9 from Outer Space. And the weird, crazed hermit uncles that genuinely love it. And my book is a manifesto for all those crazed hermit uncles. A lot of people think of me as like a bad movie guy, things like that. I find it a little offensive. You know me, I know you, I love all of film, but I obviously gear myself towards genre film, horror film, exploitation films. And in the mode of traditional criticism, they kind of get the lower end of the rung, they get denigrated a lot. And in my opinion, that has a way of making films disappear. They are obviously got buried due to the time period they were in. They're lost on all formats. And then in the meantime, you've just had a generation after generation of film critics that just beat these films into the ground, and that way films just disappear outright. And as long as they're not talked about, they're not watched, it's my goal to bring that uh, with my blog, the Bonkers S Cinema blog and the book is to uh, bring these films, give them a little life, bring them into the mainstream a little bit. I approach each film on its own terms from in the context of its time period, its genre, the filmography of the filmmaker. I just treat it with respect. The book is a work of humor. I have a little fun with it, but I don't poke fun at the films themselves. And I think that's what the ethos is. I think a lot of people who are into this type of cinema, they they approach this with an ironic lens that I absolutely despise. Well, and if people want a point of reference sort of for you, it's kind of the Joe Bob Briggs approach to films. He's like a hero of mine because, I mean, I caught him in the late 80s and 90s. And it kind of guided my film taste in general. He was the first one to really take these exploitation films seriously as a film critic. Obviously, he had fun and did his shtick, which is what I do too. I have fun and I have my shtick. But he took them seriously. He championed films that would otherwise not have been championed. His ethos guides my ethos. So what does a film need to have to be considered bonkers enough to be included in your book? That's a great question. I went a lot back and forth with myself for 15 months on that very question. It has to have a certain quality. It doesn't have to be crazy or wild or anything like that, but a certain quality that I haven't just seen before. And that's what I always look for. That's what's entertaining to me. It's just like, usually the films I pick are like singular visions of a filmmaker that only makes sense to the guy who made the film. And that that's what draws me to it. I'm drawn to the most extreme things, either extreme metal, extreme punk rock, extreme filmmaking. I'm always looking for that next high, looking for that next piece to juice me up. And just watching this weird, just singular vision of a weirdo who had $10,000 is uh, all I need to get through the day sometimes. So what can people expect to find in your book in the sense of how do you break the films into categories? Is it just films? Do you include filmmakers? Kind of uh, what can they expect from this? 
I chose nine film genres uh, just to focus on to guide me through animal attacks films, uh, sexploitation, blaxploitation, monster films, alien films, even a Bigfoot chapter. There's a whole action chapter, and I deal with your favorite film of all time, Dangerous Men. And then there are certain filmmakers I wanted to focus on, so I have little subchapters, director spotlights for the likes of like Doris Wishman and Rene Cardona Jr. Well, I wanted to ask you about Dangerous Men because I feel like if you talk a little bit about Dangerous Men, it may give people a better sense of what defines bonkers ass because it's not simply sometimes what's on the screen, but also what went on into that whole process of bringing these films to life. Yeah, so Dangerous Men is a hilarious example of, as you say, what we're talking about, this, the ethos, the bonkers as cinema, the guiding force of why I would pick a film to be included in the book. And it's uh, directed by a guy named, I believe, John S. Rad. But basically, he started making Dangerous Men, I believe, in the early 80s and finished it in the mid-90s. And it just got released a few years ago. So, I mean, we're talking about a process of 30-plus years to get where we are now. Dangerous Men. Guaranteed it's like nothing you've seen before. It's just a guy with no budget, spent 10 years on the bulk of the production with different actors playing different parts and people that are fatter, older in the meantime. It, it doesn't address it at all. It's the best. You are going to be having a book signing, and you're going to be showing a film called Night Beast. So what can you say about Night Beast as to why this is a good film to have at your book signing? It, it epitomizes exactly what the book is. See the movie that will change the face of modern science fiction cinema. Night Beast. Terror from beyond. Like, it's directed and written by Don Doler, who was this, ah, just this true underground inspirational figure who lived in Baltimore. Before he was doing filmmaking, he was involved in publishing. He started, I believe, a magazine called Cinemagic in the late 70s. And this, like, magazine found its way into the hands of, like, people like J.J. Abrams. Things like just, like, influenced a whole generation of, of filmmakers. But he not only could teach you how to do it, he did it himself. And so he made a series of the wildest, cheapest, most handmade science fiction action films. They always usually featured a crash landing of an alien. And you never know what the motivation of the alien is. He just likes to walk around and kill people. And utilizing just the most handmade special effects you've ever seen. Like he wasn't afraid to get gory and... Night Beast is one of those films you can look at and you can make fun of. Sure, like it's very easy to watch Night Beast and make fun of it. But just to imagine it was made for like $30,000 of what they're able to get on screen. It's inspirational and like, you know, really appreciative to be able to show Night Beast and get everyone in there to, to watch the Night Beast do Night Beast. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about your bonkers ass cinema book. No, thank you. What a pleasure. 
That was Beth Accomando speaking with her friend and fellow film geek, Matt Rotman. Rotman will be signing copies of his book and presenting the film Night Beast at Digital Gym Cinema this Saturday at 1 p.m. Both Accomando and Rotman are volunteer programmers at Film Geek San Diego, which is hosting the event. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.